If you're still on the hunt for a sports book to call home, bet the nonstop action of March Madness with my bookie. Enter bracket contests for a chance to take home prizes of up to $25,000 or pick from a huge selection of straight bets, props, and odds boosts. Whatever your style, MyBookie makes it easy to play your way and get paid. Sign up now and take advantage of our generous welcome offer to score a massive first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. All you have to do is claim promo code MADNESS50. But the fun doesn't stop there. Get up-to-the-minute odds, free bets, and expert predictions to help you decide who to put your money on. The best part about MyBookie? You can bet on anything, anytime, from anywhere. Use promo code MADNESS50, that's MADNESS50, to secure your limited-time welcome bonus today. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UJ Podcast. I'm Tyler, and with me today is my co-host, Curtis. And guys, you know it. It's the end of the month, which on this show, at least during the offseason, means it's time for the listener mailbag. We always love these shows. If you are new to the show and are maybe checking out our show for the first time in your quest to find some Georgia sports talk in the midst of this uh, pandemic, First off, welcome, but as far as our mailbag episodes go, we do these at least once a month during the offseason, sometimes more, depending on what's going on in the news, but at least once a month, and then during the football season, we really get after it, we will do a mailbag episode each and every week, because obviously there is a ton to talk about. So today is our April mailbag episode, at least part one of the April mailbag, and even though the world of sports has come to a virtual standstill, with the exception of the NFL Draft last weekend, uh, obviously the ratings are huge for the NFL Draft because that was like the only sports we've had for almost two months now. Uh, but even with the lack of sports, you guys still sent in a load of great questions, which, to be honest, is not surprising at all because you guys always bring it for the mailbag. Uh, and actually, in fact, some of the questions were so good that they're going to require some really in-depth answers, which means, like I said a second ago, we're going to break the April mailbag into two parts. Uh, we really wanted to try to get them all in today in one episode, but uh, we only actually have a short window to record this episode today where Curtis and I's schedules kind of matched up. I know it's kind of weird to think that where we're in quarantine, we're both kind of working from home, but we still got things going on and our, our uh, schedules only matched up for a short window of time today. And uh, we want to make sure to give each question the attention it deserves. So we just decided to go ahead and break this up into two parts. So if your question does not get answered today, I promise you, I promise, we are not ignoring anyone. Any question we don't get to today, we will get to in the next episode. But all right, we do have a short window today, so we want to get through as many questions as we can so let's go ahead and open it up. And we're going to start with a question that we sort of teased at the end of our last episode. And really for years now, we've kind of heard rival fan bases especially use this as an argument against us, kind of as to why our coaching staff is overrated. And I started to actually see this, kind of why I find, it, this, I find this to be an interesting topic. I kind of started to see this argument kind of come from some members, and I know these are probably fringe members, uh, of our fan base, but some people in our own fan base were kind of questioning our coaching staff uh, during and immediately after the NFL draft last weekend. So I'm really glad we got this question on this topic 
so that we can address it head on. And the question comes from Seth. And Seth, I really appreciate you sending this question in. I think it's a great question, a really relevant topic right now in the aftermath of the NFL draft. And Seth's question is this. What does the lack of success in getting our defensive players drafted say about our defensive coaching staff? Is there something to the idea that Kirby and staff are great recruiters, but are lacking in their ability to develop those elite recruits? Kurt, how would you answer that question? I first off think it's a ridiculous sentiment. I mean, first off, I actually want to give more credit to the coaching staff than what people are doubting them because it's obvious that we haven't had true stars on our defense lately. And yet we're still putting up ridiculous defensive numbers. And when we have our stars, they sh- we highlight them and get them drafted a la Roquan Smith. Um, for the most part, we haven't hit, uh, just had these big defensive recruits to come in um, and also like that are going to be pro to players. I mean, let's be honest. Well, the guys that we to- have brought in are not draft eligible yet. That's just the fact. Exactly. Well, and here's, here's another thing too. I don't believe in all these recruiting rankings. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, Richard LeCount was one of the top safeties in his class, but does he have the intangibles that jump off of you and scream, I'm going to be a pro safety? No, not really. He doesn't have that size or the, you know, he's not hot, taller weight, his weight. And yeah, he doesn't like have that. measurables. And he exactly. was number 25 so nationally, a five-star coming out of, out of high school. And Richard's been really, really good for us, but has he been – the top, a number 25 player nationally, a five-star player throughout his entire career in, in Athens? I would say no. And I don't think that's coaching the coach's fault. I mean, he's been a good player for us. But like you said, is, has he played up to that expectation? No. And I mean, I th- also think it's a like a sentiment, like I was saying, like you, when you don't have all the measurements, like as you can see in the draft, a lot of that is what gets you drafted. I mean, look at J.R. Reed. The guy was a three-year starter for us, did all these things for us, and yet he didn't get drafted. And a lot of that had to do with, in my opinion, his measurements. Um, yeah. He doesn't jump off the the page at you with his speed um, or with his size or anything like that. So, and then outside of the um, Richard and people like that, I mean, what big name recruits have we gotten that they're talking about? Uh, to be honest, that have been draft eligible to this point. I I, t- I totally agree. The, the 2018 class guys that was our first and more recruiting class under Kirby Smart. Those guys are not draft eligible yet. The first time they'll be draft eligible is next year. So the best is yet to come. Uh, and, and I want to just go back to Richard account real quick because you made a really good point. Greg. I know a lot of people are saying, well, Richard's been really good. He's been a, a multiple year starter. Yes, guys, Richard has been good for us. But I think you bringing him up is a really good example of development, though, Kirkus. When Richard first got here, he wasn't ready. You're exactly right. He was, um, yeah, he was highly rated, highly recruited. So people were expecting him to be that guy right away. But I think you're right. I think he was a little bit overrated coming out of high school. Not to mean, not to mean that he can't be a good player and that he doesn't have a lot of talent. He does. But he was also 5'11", 190 pounds coming out of high school. And he was known as like a headhunter um, at, at the high school level. But also you have to consider the level of competition he was playing. He was playing Liberty County, a lower level uh, classification in the state of Georgia, where it didn't matter that he wasn't that much bigger uh, than what he was because he those guys he was playing against were so small guys and he could destroy them. He the that's one reason he, he has so, he's had so much trouble tackling because yes, of that. Yes, 100%. Because he didn't have to. All he had to do was put a shoulder in somebody from the safety position, and they would go down when he was in high school. You get to the college level, and you do that, it doesn't work. And, and Kirby was all over him about that early on in his career. You guys know how tough Kirby was on him. But look at how we developed him going into last year. Last year, I think we saw for the first time that Richard account was starting to live up to that five-star ranking. It took a couple of years, but that's development, right, Kurt? Well, I also want to bring up development. I mean, yeah, he was Mr. Irrelevant, but we took a guy who was a line uh, running back and got him, and he got drafted. So, Absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't 
if I if you can't call that uh, development, then I sure as heck don't know what you call development. Let's go down the list of some of the guys that we've developed on the defensive side of the ball that were not highly rated guys that have become big time players. Um, DeAndre Baker. DeAndre Baker was a uh, first round pick, if I'm correct, and yet yeah. he wasn't a five star recruit. I think DeAndre um, so, Baker was I mean, a three star. I'm gonna look this up. I believe well, he was, he was and yeah, star. even though I believe Pruitt recruited him, the fact was he developed. But he was under a three star. No, who recruited him? Yeah, yeah, and either way, he developed under Kirby Smart and staff. So, I mean, I don't – right now, I'm not going to – I can't sit here and think of any four or five stars that I think, wow, these guys should be top picks realistically on the defensive side of the ball. Like, you may see it with people like Nolan and Kobe and things like that that are actually more so what we have. But I don't – while we've had good players on defense, I feel like a lot of the big-name players that we've got built our recruiting classes around have been offensive linemen and, and running backs and things like that. I totally agree. I, I, I go back to Baker. He was number. I have the numbers here. He was number six hundred and fifty-seven nationally coming out of high school, a three-star prospect out of Miami. Uh, no, and Kirby uh, did not recruit him, but he was the guy that developed him into what he ultimately became. And, we, and Eric Stokes is another great example. Number six hundred sixty-eight nationally. I remember when he when we signed him very late in that recruiting process. And look at what Eric Stokes has become under Kirby Smart. You talked about Tay Crowder, who was number 1,000. Yes, 1,868 ranked player nationally when he came out of high school. And Noah Curry took him from a, a guy who was a running back slash former wide receiver and turned him into a starting caliber player in the SEC and a guy that's going to have a chance. We'll see what, what is happening, but has a chance to make an NFL roster. You go back, you mentioned JRE, number 1,856 nationally coming out of high school. We talked about him last week. Uh, Aaron Davis, remember him from a couple years ago? I know, again, Kirby didn't recruit him, but developed him into a very good player for us. Dominic Sanders, who you and I were hard on at times, and was never a superstar, but still, this guy was number 822 nationally. Kirby didn't recruit him, but Kirby helped develop him into a very good SEC football player. Tyler Clarkson, the guy, according to some of the recruiting services out there, he was a three-star prospect. Uh, Jordan Davis, who's become a really good defensive lineman force on the interior, number 424 nationally. These are all examples of defensive prospects that were completely off the radar that have developed into starters for us under Kirby Smart. And guys, we had the number one defense in the country last year with guys, with how many guys we have drafted off the defense here? One guy who was the last pick in the draft, and that was the number one defense last year? Uh, I just have a hard time saying that we're not developing players. I, honestly, like, rather than that – Or that we don't have good coaching. I mean, I it, it's really – I just got to question – I got to question that, that sentiment. From, that's why I was mentioning I just don't believe in that sentiment from people. Yeah. Uh, and like, I, I respect difference, differences of opinion. I really do. And I'm not trying to say that I have all the answers. I don't. But, like, in, and when it comes to this question, I just – like my, I feel strongly in saying, like, rather than it being an indictment on our defensive coaching staff that we only had one defensive player draft, and that guy Tay Crowder was the last pick in the draft this year, I think our our coaches should be applauded for what they were able to do with. If you want to say a less talented defense, I don't know if I agree. With that. I think it was a young uh, defense that the the most talented guys were the younger guys who were underclassmen who were not draft eligible yet, and the guys who were draft eligible, the upperclassmen were not as talented. I think you can say that. Uh, with the exception of maybe Richard Account, who decided to come back. But rather than it being an indictment on our defensive coaches, I think our coaches, our defensive coaches should be applauded. Now, I think you could say the inverse for our offensive coaches, though, right, Kurt? If you look, we had yeah. six offensive players drafted and look at how just like tragically awful our offense was last year. Like, it's that I, I think it's, it's fair to say, okay, well, our coaches had this talent to work with offensively and look at what they were able to produce. Like, that, that is the inverse to what our defensive coaches were able to do. And like, I, I would also add this, too. Like, I think that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is like if you measure your player development by NFL draft picks, 
We've had 21 draft picks over the past four seasons and 20 over the past three seasons. Uh, and this was the first, like the guys this year that came out, uh, this was the first year Kirby has been working almost exclusively with the players that he recruited and signed, um, which might tell you more about the valuation that Kirby and his staff do, which I think they do a really good job of, of evaluating high school prospects. So I might tell you more about that than development. But this year's draft class was the first group of players that Kirby and his staff had at least three years, like what I would consider a full cycle to work with and develop. And we had the fifth most players drafted overall. No, we didn't have as many as LSU. But guys, they just won the national championship. We didn't have as much as uh, as many as Alabama. Alabama, while we were recruiting as well as Al- Alabama has over the past three to four years, if you go back to you know five, six years down the road, Alabama has stacked up more recruiting classes consecutively than we have. Now, we're starting to break that cycle. But if you go back further, which is where this class would come into play, Alabama has recruited really, really well. And we were one of eight programs this past year that had multiple first-round draft picks and one of only four teams in the nation to have at least three players go in the first 35 picks. So, like, by that measure, we're certainly not lacking either. Uh, I think what some people are trying to point at, and by some people I mean our rival fan bases who's only possible outlet to claim like any semblance of relevancy is to try to tear us down uh you guys see this on social media you know what i'm talking about uh what they try to do is is draw a connection really what they look at and say there's a discrepancy between the number of five-star prospects and number one number two recruiting classes that that we have signed and then our relative nfl draft success like the claim is like sure georgia has put some guys in the nfl but it's not even close to the number they should be putting into the draft uh or into the first round uh and basically what they're saying is is that we can recruit, but we can't coach and develop, which I think you and I, Curtis, have debunked here. I don't buy that. I know well, the argument is out and, there. I think that's the only arguments that people can that our rivals can try to use against Kirby in recruiting is they just the fact is they can't compete with him in recruiting. So like uh, the only thing they can possibly say is, well, yeah, you cannot recruit us, but like we're developing players more than you. And it's like actually, if you look at look at it realistically and actually pay attention, that's just not true. It's just not. Well, true. And I also think that like you know I made that mention. I believe it too that recruiting rankings are a little over are ridiculous. Yeah, I I. I I, you know, I, I I absolutely agree with you. I mean, you talk about like Mikel Carter was ranked higher than Tyler Clark. And if you look, I mean, if he was in the same class as Jordan Davis, Jordan, he would have probably been higher than Jordan Davis. So, and that's the thing, like they give those people those attentions. When we got Jordan Davis, it wasn't even a big deal. Look how he's been an anchor for our defense. So well, and, and Carter was, was more highly ranked, uh, actually significantly more highly ranked than Tyler Carter was coming, uh, than Tyler Clark was coming out of high school. And we we all saw how that played out. Like Mikel Carter was like maybe a, a role player if you want to like that's like that's a stretch to even call him a role player. Whereas Tyler Clark, now I know he didn't get drafted, but like he was a, he was a a fixture in our defensive interior for many years. So you're right. Like I, I think like there are there are there are almost like can't miss prospects. Uh, those some of those five star guys. Like if you look at the NFL draft, I think it was like 26 of the 32 players that were drafted in the first round were like were four or five stars. It's like there are some guys that you know, like, yeah, those guys are are going to but, be really good and, players. And here's my thing too, though. Look, I would I would love to go through a list of all the five stars that have signed with schools and see how many were look at the draft rate. Yeah, well, yeah, flameouts. I mean. One, I think of one person I'm thinking of right now, um, Xavier Thomas, that went to Clemson. You know, you just have people like that that, you ha- yeah, that, that I, happens I, at all these you, other schools. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is that there are a ton of players that come in with a lot of hype because they are these highly rated five-star prospects when in reality they have no business being rated that high and are highly overrated by the recruiting services. And, and, and that's a tough job. Don't get me wrong. That's a really tough job. 
They do the best they can. The recruiting services, you know, they only have uh, a limited number of tools and opportunities to evaluate these prospects. They do the best they can with the resources that they have at their disposal. I mean, and there are literally thousands and thousands of prospects out there, and there's only so many guys actually involved in the prospect ranking process. So it's it is really difficult to rank these guys as accurately as we would like. I'm not trying to kill the recruiting rankers at all. It's a really tough gig. But, I mean, pick any year, and you can name a number of different highly touted five-star guys that were just complete bust, or at the very least, in no way lived up to their their high rankings. I mean, take just the last few years, for example. I mean, let's think 2018, you had guys like, oh, let's say Britton Cox here in Athens. Uh, wide receiver Justin Shorter went to Penn State. Uh, Ayabi Anoma was a top five prospect who ended up going to Bama. He's already transferred twice. Yet Lorenzo Lingard, who along with, with Cox and Shorter, all three five-star guys that transferred to Florida, but all those guys, Brent Cox, Justin Shorter, Anoma, Lingard, those are all five-star prospects from the 2018 class that have already transferred because they couldn't cut it at their first school. Complete bust. And, and maybe bust is a little strong, but have certainly not played to a five-star level. Then this thing, 2017, uh, I think the number one prospect that year was Jalen Phillips, uh, who went to UCLA, and he's been, I mean, really was a complete bust. Now, part of that was injuries. I think he's at Miami now, I want to say, but he certainly hasn't been the number one prospect. Uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones uh, was like a, a top 10-ish prospect, if I remember correctly, in the 2017 class, and uh, he went to Michigan, was a solid-ish player, certainly far from a superstar, and just got drafted in the sixth round of the NFL draft and these recruiting rankings that tell you if, if you're a, a five-star prospect, you're expected to be a, a first-round draft pick. And that certainly didn't happen with, with Peoples-Jones. Aubrey Solomon is another guy from here in the state of Georgia who was a five-star prospect. Uh, hasn't been a factor anywhere. Went to Michigan, transferred down to Tennessee. Still has not been a factor. Um, and then in 2016, go back another year. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think this is accurate. Check me on this. But the top two quarterbacks that year were Shea Patterson and Jacob Eason. And we know Eason... Started here, went to Washington. Uh, it was solid, good, but never really lived up to the hype wherever he was and got drafted in the fourth round, so a middle, middle round draft pick. So, I mean, good player, but not a, a five-star prospect. Shea Patterson was an average at best starter at Michigan who didn't even get drafted. And and that's just a few guys off the top of my head. And I, and I know there are a lot more. Um, and, and I know the you're probably wondering, like, who cares about this? How, how is this relevant? And the reason that this is important in this argument about development, it, it's that when guys get that kind of publicity in the recruiting scene, the expectation among the general college population, the college fan base, I guess, is that those guys are going to come in right away and just be stars at the college level. And if that doesn't happen, if they don't pan out, People blame the coaches because the thought is, hey, these were can't-miss guys, and they underachieved under you, so it's your fault. The implication becomes that you as a coaching staff can't develop players, when in reality, like that might be the case sometimes. I'm not, I'm not going to say that's never the case, but more often than not, it's really it's a case of where it's more about the player and that they, they were just overrated coming out of high school, and that puts undue pressure on coaching staffs. I think it creates some unfair perceptions out there about which coaching staffs can develop and, and that kind of thing. Now, I, I will say, though, to be fair, the, the the rankings are getting better and better as camps become more prevalent. You know, all these recruiting camps out there, uh, All-American Games, there's more All-American Games now than there ever have been before. So, uh, you know, those rankings are becoming better, and recruiting services are getting more opportunities to see the top prospects, which is great. I think the number was 26 out of 32 of the first-round draft picks this year, I want to say, were four- or five-star recruits when they came out of high school. And that's that's pretty impressive. That's hitting on a, a vast majority of those guys. You're never going to hit all of them, but 26 out of 32, that, that, that's pretty impressive number there. But what I would argue is that 
while they're doing a better job with the top guys because those are the guys getting invites to the to the rivals five star challenges and and the openings and all that kind of stuff. They just get more opportunities to see those guys, and sometimes since they see them more often, they artificially inflate their ratings. And I don't think it's a malicious thing or anything that they do consciously. It just it's natural. And I would say there's still a ton of guys that they do miss on because those guys don't camp or they don't put a lot of tape out there on huddle or things like that. They don't play the recruiting game. They don't do all the interviews and that kind of stuff. And I do think that plays a role in how those rankings play out. So, Kurt, yeah, I do think you you bring up a really good point there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. But, uh, all right, let's move on to question number two. Uh, this one is from Cliff. We always appreciate it, Cliff. And Cliff has a great question. He says, what do you think of the criticism that it was the Georgia offense that caused Jake Fromm's slide in the NFL draft? I think there's a lot of merit to it. Rarely using up-tempo, which Fromm thrived in. Uh, man ball, predictable offense, zone read. That was fooling nobody. So, Kurt, do you agree with Cliff that Fromm's slide can be traced back to our offensive scheme? Um, maybe it could have helped him showcase his abilities a little bit more. But in the fact of the matter is, we've seen where NFL teams will take you even if your offense, uh, if you did, if pretty much if you lacked in college. I mean, look at Jordan Love. The guy did put up terrible stats, you know, stats that shouldn't have been a first round caliber. But they took him on his, what all, all his intangibles, and that's not where Jake Fromm is. I mean, the, the scouts will still see, you know the certain things that they know he can be successful in. If they believe that he could have been successful in their system and fit their system, they would have taken him higher. It just really came down to, you know, like I mentioned, his arm strength and all those different things like that because teams will take chances if they believe they can develop a, develop someone. Yeah. And Cliff, I, I totally see where you're coming from, man. And I, and I agree with you to a large extent, but here's what I would say. I think it's a combination of both things. I think it goes both ways. I think, and let me explain what I mean by that. I don't think I articulate that very well. I think, that there were structural deficiencies within our offense that held Jake Fromm back. I absolutely agree with you, Cliff. I 100% agree with that. And look, I've had some time, like, you know, when you're in the season and I'm going back and watching the the replays and breaking those down uh, every Sunday morning and afternoon uh, after a game to get ready for our recap show, there's only so many things that I can really, like, pay attention to as closely as I would like to. It's really the offseason when I can go back and rewatch all the games multiple times and really dig into like the uh, the nuances of what we're trying to do. Uh, so I haven't had a chance to do that, especially now that during this quarantine, to go back and watch and just kind of pour over all of our games from last year and just really kind of zero in on what we were trying to do offensively. And, and I know that we don't have the same group come back, but I really want to see like, okay, was it, especially now, uh, once Jay got drafted last week, got drafted what uh, in the fifth round last week, I really went back and I, I watched a couple of games uh, Saturday night and Sunday night. And just kind of dug into like, okay, is it, was it a Jake thing? Was it an off? Like, what was the issue? 
And to me, like one of the things I noticed, uh, a couple of things I noticed from our offense, like structurally, was our, our route combinations. I noticed this during the season last year too. Uh, they were just baffling at times. Like I, I honestly, in some cases, actually in, in too far too many cases, I have no idea what we were trying to do from a route combination perspective. Receivers running in the same area, uh, just not really like things you don't see any teams on any level do. I just, and I don't understand. I just, I try to understand what we're trying to do. Go back and look at it. So there's got to be a reason. I just don't know what it is. I'm sure there's a reason. I just can't figure it out. Um, some of our run blocking schemes were just flat out nonsensical. Uh, can't make any sense of them at all. Uh, and if you look at some of like the draw, like the, the, the quarterback drops, you know, three, four, five, six, whatever it is, the drops and the routes that we were running with those drops just didn't really mesh or align a lot of the time. So the timing was off on a lot of those routes, which I really think played a big part in some of uh, Jake Fromm's accuracy numbers dropping uh, in 2019 compared to 2017, 2018. So, yeah, I think structural deficiencies certainly held Jake back. I do agree with you, Cliff. But I would also look at the flip side, and, and I, I would argue also that that Jake Fromm's physical deficiencies held our offense back in a lot of ways. And uh, he, he also had like a lot of uh, mechanical issues, which yes. that's on him. Yeah. Yes, and I, I've gone back and really tried to zero in on a lot of those things. Again, notice some of the things, and we talked about some of the, the mechanical issues last year. You were, you and I were on that, especially you, Kurt. Um, but I, and I went back and tried to pay attention, especially in, pre- in preparation for the NFL draft, trying to, trying to figure out where I thought Jake would go. And um, there, there are definitely some mechanical issues. Um, his footwork got very sloppy uh, as the year went on. Um, he was on his toes a lot. Uh, arm angles weren't always great. Uh, and like the things I mentioned going into the draft, like the reason I didn't think he was going to be a first round pick, I thought he was more of a third or fourth round guy, is if you watch him closely, like we all know that he doesn't have the greatest arm. His, his arm is above the threshold you need to be to be an NFL quarterback, but he had to put so much of his body into throwing the ball down the field that I think it really impacted his accuracy. So I think that kind of uh, physical deficiency, as long as like the, just the lack of athleticism, because you could see signs of James Coley want to his uh, to his credit, you could see him wanting to move more towards some spread based stuff that required an athletic quarterback. Uh, we would run some of the zone reads, like Cliff was mentioned. Like there were times last year where we were running like what looked like an inverted veer, basically. Uh, and you can, if you guys know what I'm talking about, so basically it's like where the quarterback uh, is. It's, it's kind of like a zone read, but where the uh, the quarterback and the running back like their roles are kind of inverted, they're reversed, where we have the quarterback who is, he's, he's, there's a mesh point, he's reading the, somebody on the defensive line or a linebacker, and he's either the, the option to hand the ball off to the running back going around the edge on the perimeter, like an edge run, or he can then take it and run up the middle, which is kind of the, the inverse of what the zone read is, where the running back is going to be the one that runs up the middle, or the, or, and then the quarterback's the one that can pull it and run to the edge. And I, I don't honestly, and I kept saying during the season, like, why are we running these things with Jake from? I like those plays if you have the right quarterback, but why on earth are we running those kind of things? So I think Coley wanted to move more towards that. But the problem was he just like he just had a guy. He, Jake Fromm just wasn't that guy. That's the bottom line. It's like he wanted to do some of these things, but Jake Fromm wasn't that guy. And the end result was catastrophic for both. It was catastrophic, catastrophic for the offense as a whole and catastrophic for Jake Fromm and his his NFL prospects. Because I mean, look, listen to this, guys. Think about this. Jake Fromm went from, uh, as a freshman, he was sixth nationally in total QBR to third nationally as a sophomore uh, in 2018 in total QBR to 18th nationally in total QBR last year under James Coley. That's a significant drop. And I think a big part of it was James Coley's offense. I know everyone to say it was the same as, as Jim Cheney's. It was not. There were some similarities, but there were vast differences. And those differences certainly 
did not help Jake Fromm. Jake was not comfortable in that offense. Again, some of the route combinations were terrible. The drops and routes didn't match. All those things, the, the blocking seams were just nonsensical. It was just terrible stuff. So uh, to me, that's a big, that is a big part of what accounted for Jake Fromm dropping as far as he did all the way down into the late fifth round. But on the flip side, I do think you can go back and it's fair to say there were some physical deficiencies that Fromm had that I think kept Coley from running the kind of offense I think he ultimately would have liked to have run if he had a more athletic quarterback. So I think it's a little bit of both. But uh, all right, let's move on here. Actually, we have another question about Jake Fromm. This is a question we've touched on many times, but um, obviously with what went down in the draft this is another question that's going to come up. So we were happy to, to discuss this again. And uh, this is from Trey. Really appreciate the question, Trey. And Trey says, I know you guys talked a lot about Jake Fromm in the last episode, but with his performance last year compared to Justin Fields, uh, his performance and Fromm getting drafted in the fifth round compared to Fields likely going in the first round next year, is it now safe to say that Kirby rode the wrong horse in 2018 and made a mistake that will cost us a national title? Ooh, all right, Kurt, that's a heavy question. Uh, how would you address that? Um, here's the thing. In 2018, I think Jake Fromm was the right choice. Justin Fields wasn't f- ready. And is it fair to when you we we still probably could have won a national championship that year? Is it fair to that to our team to put a quarterback out there who's not ready in a position that could all, in that situation where all he would have done was potentially hurt the team and held them back from going to the next step? And I think that was the case in 2018 where Justin just wasn't ready. And I felt like I, realistically the team may have suffered if we had played him as our starting quarterback the, pretty much the entire season and rode him as his horse. Um, and, but I mean, and also here's the thing too, as good as Justin was, if we didn't change our offensive scheme, I think we would have wasted Justin and he wouldn't have been the quarterback that you saw at Ohio state. So I think he actually went somewhere that was the best situation for him. Um, and while I do believe he is the best, better quarterback between the two long-term at the time, I, uh, I, I do think that staying with Jake was the right decision. Kurt, you and I are in 1000% agreement when it comes to, uh, this question. Look, I, I'm with you, man. Like, If you look back and you try to point to 2018, to that season, and the decision Kirby Smart faced in playing either Jake Fromm or Justin Fields and who's going to be the starter, and you point back and you say that Kirby clearly made the wrong decision, rode the wrong horse, and that's going to cost us a national title. It was the worst thing that he ever did for our program. I think that's completely 100% revisionist history, and it involves just flat-out willfully ignoring the facts as they were in 2018 and ignoring the context of that team and that season. The, the one thing that, that I really try to point out when answering this question, again, we had uh, I had a really cool, productive conversation about this, uh, some dialogue with, with a number of different guys on social media a couple weeks ago about this very question, and, and I totally get where, where different people are coming from, and I do respect people when they say that Justin Fields was the more talented quarterback in 2018. Because I think that he was. Like, and I think I don't think that's even questionable. I don't, think, I don't think that's debatable. Justin Fields was the more athletic, more talented, physically gifted quarterback in 2018. He was the, the more gifted, physically gifted, talented quarterback in 2019. We all saw that last year. And it was the same case in 2018. But I agree with you, Curtis. And I've always said this. Going back to 2018 when Kirby actually made the decision, Jake Fromm was the right choice, in my humble opinion, for that specific season, for that specific team, within the framework of that specific offense. The fact is, even if Justin Fields was more talented physically, he wasn't as equipped to run that 
Georgia pro-style offense as Jake Fromm was. I don't think our offense would have functioned as successfully in 2018 with Justin Fields at the helm, even though he was more athletic and more talented. Now, he sh- sure, he could have made some, some of those wow plays every now and then, and those would have been incredible, uh, and they would have voted very well for the future. But And I know he didn't get a ton of playing time in 2018, but what I saw from him I saw no evidence that he was ready to lead that offense, to run that offense, because I don't think that pro-style attack really matched his skill set. Now, if we were running a wide-open spread attack that, that you saw from Ohio State, yeah, I think obviously Justin Fields would have been the answer, but that wasn't what our offense was. Our offense was more pro-style. It required you to go through more reads, understand coverages, all those things, more so than what you have to do with your typical spread offense. I'm not saying those that any just dummy can play those offenses. They can't. But the fact is, spread offense, one of the reasons they've become so prevalent over the years is that with only 20 hours a week to work with your players, they're just more simple to teach. The reads are more simplistic. It's simplified for the quarterback. They are easier to run than your typical pro-style attack. And I just don't think Justin Fields was ready to surpass from in that regard in 2018. Now, be careful. I'm not saying that Justin Fields never would have been able to pass up from. In fact, if he would have come back in 2019, I feel very strongly he would have had a really, really good chance with a year under his belt, learning the offense, getting up to speed, all those things. I think he would have been uh, maybe not quite on par with the understanding of the offense that Jake was, so Jake still would have had an extra year on him, but I think he would have closed the gap enough from a knowledge standpoint and be able to run that offense that his his superior physical tools would have allowed him to potentially overtake from if he would have stayed until 2019. Now, I get why he left. I don't begrudge him. I've kind of evolved my thinking in that. Uh, I, I don't necessarily love some of the uh, rationale that was used for him to transfer, but I get the decision. And if I was in that same situation, I very likely would have done the, the same thing. At least I would have put some long, hard thought into that. But it doesn't mean he was the best choice in 2018. Now, another argument that, I, that I've seen kind of thrown out there is, okay, and they'll kind of... Uh, they'll kind of give me give me that argument. Say, okay, yeah, all right. Maybe he wasn't as ready to run the Georgia offense, that pro style attack in 2018 as Jake Fromm. But you have to look ahead to 2019, 2020. You kind of have to just bite the bullet, take your lumps, and uh, play Justin Fields so that you can be ready to really roll in 2019, 2020. Get him that experience, all that kind of thing. And I fundamentally disagree with that because as a coach. It isn't. A, it cannot be about who's going to win you the most games the next year or two years down the road. It has to be like your decision on who your starter is going to be has to be who is going to help me win the most games this year. And some people disagree with that. That's fine. I just think you, as a coach, how can you possibly look your team in the face, especially your seniors, the guys that have put it all on the line for four or five years? How can you possibly look you, those guys, that team, in the eye and say, you know what, guys? I know Jake Fromm gives us the best chance to win right now. I really believe that in, in my heart of hearts. But I think if we play fields this year, we'll, we'll take some lumps. We'll lose a couple games because of that, maybe just one or two. Um, but you know what? It'll put us in a better position to win in 2019 and 2020. And I guess I get that thinking to a degree. But again, you simply cannot do that. You will lose your team. You owe it to all of those guys, the entire team, to say, I'm going to give you the best chance to win this year. And I think Jake Fromm gave us the best chance to win in 2018. Doesn't mean he would have in 2019, 2020, but I think in that year he did. And you, you just simply, as a coach, you have to go with what you think gives your team that year the best chance to win. And I think Kirby Smart did that. Now, you and some people say, uh, another argument that I hear is that, that, that Kirby and Cheney should have changed the entire offense to fit Justin Fields before he got there, spent the offseason to change it. 
Um, and then, you know, when he gets there in the spring, start running more spread style attack that fits his skill set. And I just, I just don't think that's realistic because what that would have involved us doing essentially, if you're going to say, all right, you know what, we, we got this hot, this hot shot quarterback, really highly rated guy, super talented, probably more talented than the quarterback that we currently have right now. Um, so let's go ahead and change the entire offensive structure to fit his skill set. That would have basically involved us just handing the job to Justin Fields in the spring of 2018 without making him earn it or without even confirming that he is indeed the best option. Because for you, let me explain what I mean by that. Like for you to really change the structure of an offense to, to the degree that it would have taken for our offense just to fit the skill set of a freshman Justin Fields, we absolutely would have had to have start done had to have start doing that in the spring of 2018. Like that's just you can't just start changing the offense like two weeks before the, the season starts. Like you can't go into half spring practice, go into fall camp and have an open competition and decide, you know, a week or two before uh, the first game that, you know what, Justin Fields, you know what, he's more talented. We're going to go and go ahead and go with this guy. So let's change our offense to fit his skill set. There's no way you can do that in two weeks before the season begins. This isn't Madden. This, this isn't PlayStation or Xbox. It's just not how that works. So if we were, again, stuck with that scheme for that year until we decided Fields was ready, then Fromm, again, was to me the best option in 2018. And, and, and by the way, I do want to put this out there, too. Like, again, I think it's revisionist history, this idea that Fromm was like trash and cost us a, a national championship in 2018. Now, 2019, he certainly had a rough year, and uh, his numbers went way down. But in 2018, Fromm's numbers were, I mean, they were flat out awesome. Um, he completed almost 68% of his passes, 9 yards per attempt, 30 touchdowns to six interceptions. He was number three nationally in total QBR behind Tua Tungavailoa and Kyler Murray, the Heisman Trophy winner and the Heisman Trophy runner-up. And and by the way, our offense also was not the problem that year. In 2018, our offense was awesome. Our offense was number four in offensive efficiency nationally, number three in available yards, number four in first down percentage, uh, number five in touchdown rate. Our offense was plenty good enough to win a national title in 2018. It was our defense that was actually the problem. If you want to go back and look at it in reality, our defense wasn't terrible, but that was what kept us from getting into the college football playoff and winning the SEC title in 2018. Our defense was 30th in defensive efficiency, uh, 37th in available yards, also 37th in first down percentage, and 26th in touchdown rate. Our offense was 100% not the problem. It was actually humming in 2018. Like To go back and try to claim that we would have won the national title in 18 with Fields at quarterback instead of Fromm, to me that's just flat out revisionist history. Now I will say the one fair criticism, in my opinion, this is just me, the one thing I think you can really criticize Kirby for potentially in that whole process and how that played out was that he tried to straddle the line as much as he could between what was best for the team in 2018 and what was best for the team moving forward into 2019-2020. I think he understood that Jay Fromm gave us the best chance to win in 2018. That's why he started the season with him. That's why he kept with him after the uh, the LSU game. And, and Jay Fromm went on a tear after that, you know, from the Florida game all and the rest of the year. He was just outstanding in 2018. But he also understood that, you know, Justin Fields was incredibly talented and was obviously more physically gifted than Jake. And if we kept him on the roster moving forward and tried to change our offense to fit his skill set a little bit more once he got more comfortable, all those things I said earlier, in 2019, 2020, he might beat out Jake Fromm. So I think he was trying to keep Fields happy to keep open the possibility that he could win the job in 19 and 20 to keep him on the roster to be able to do that. But also at the same time, so you know what, I know that Jake gives us the best chance to win in 2018. He was kind of trying to straddle that line. I think that's ultimately what you can criticize him for when it came to that whole Fields-Fromm competition and debate.
But all right, let's go ahead and move on to the next question. Let's actually get into the future, what we're going to have coming forward in the 2020 season, at least hopefully. And uh, this question comes from Alexander. Really appreciate Alexander. Um, he asks, I've seen at least four mock drafts to have Jamie Newman going in the first round next year. That's high praise for someone who we haven't seen on his new team yet. Does the hype around him concern you? Do you see him being a first rounder next season? Kurt, what do you think? Uh, I don't think it will mess with him. I mean, the guy's actually one of the, I mean, one of the better returning quarterbacks in, in the nation. And I think that's just a testament to for what he did with so little talent at Wake Forest. Um, and I think the teams are hoping that, especially when you see uh, who with Todd Monken, that he will be in a better offense maybe for him and get some better uh, pro coach or coaching that will get him ready for the pros. Um, and if that's the case, then, I mean, it wouldn't shock me. I mean, you're seeing some athletic guys nowadays get drafted earlier. Um, and if he puts up decent numbers, then why not? Yeah, I, I actually think there's a really good chance. I'm not ready to go out on a limb and say like 100% he's going to be a first-round draft pick, but I, I see where the hype is coming from because uh, he, he's everything that Jay Fromm isn't. And we talked it, about it, the It's not just hype year. just because he's at Georgia either. Right, exactly. I mean, he put up numbers at Wake Forest. I know it's the against ACC competition, but still, it's Wake Forest with the talent he had around him at Wake Forest. And Sage Girard was a really good receiver, but let's just be real, didn't have nearly the overall talent he's going to have to work with here in Athens. Um, but it, it just goes back to the idea that we talked about with, with uh, the NFL Draft Recap Show that one of the reasons Jake dropped, one of the many reasons Jake dropped, is that he just doesn't have the physical tools that the NFL teams drool over, that they look for. And Jamie Newman does. Um, I don't think he's he's very different as a quarterback than Jake Fromm. I'm not sure his football IQ is quite where Jake Fromm's was, which is, and that's not to slight Jamie Newman. I mean, that's just where Fromm really excelled. I'm not saying that Jamie Newman's not good in that department. He's just, I don't know if he's quite at Fromm's level yet. We'll see more of that once we get him here on campus. And he was running a different offense at Wake Forest, which is more of a, I don't want to say a one read type offense, but there was more RPO based stuff in that offense than, than what Jake was running here in our, in our more pro style attack. But he's athletic. He's got a big arm, physical, that kind of stuff. All the physical stuff that Jake just didn't have, Jamie Newman has. And that's the kind of stuff that NFL scouts and in front of all those guys that's what they look for and i think that he has those more so than jake which i think he has he does have that going for him so if he comes into our offense with the tools that we have at, our, at uh at our disposal offensively with a new coordinator who i think is going to certainly fix some of the structural issues that we had offensively last year i think there's a really good chance that newman will put himself in a really good position to be a first round draft pick next year i mean i don't think his skill set is all that now he's not quite as big or tall as justin herbert but like I think he's closer to, to that kind of skill set than what Jake Fromm was. So I think there's a, definitely a chance to see him go in the first round. Again, not ready to say 100% it's going to happen when I say this year plays out, but I certainly don't think it's outrageous to, to suggest or to have him right now, uh, what, about a year ahead of time, to have him in the conversation for uh, a first-round draft pick. All right, moving on here, we've got a question from Christopher. He asks, how large of an impact do you think Todd Munkin will have on our offense in year one? Also, how many of our freshman wide receivers need to step up in order to create a dangerous passing attack, and who are the most likely candidates to do so? Thank you for the question, Christopher Kurt. So the first part of that, uh, first here, how big of an impact do you expect Munkin to have on the offense next year? I think he's going to have a huge impact. My biggest thing about him is I think he's going to do a better job of scheming people open. I mean, it's not that we don't have talent at the receiver position, but we just don't have – We just, especially last year, we just didn't have people that fit what the type of system we were trying to run. And I think that's what kind of really affected us so much. Um, and I, so I think that he will do a better job of getting people open, which is why I think our offense will his impact will be felt. And from the freshman receiver, I think we definitely need to get some guys to step up. You know, I'm thinking of Marcus Roseme. And uh, I'm really the, big on Justin Robinson. I really, I'm, I think Justin Robinson is going to be a good player for us. I really. And do. I'm also high on Jermaine Burton. I think he's going to be a, a big person. 
like they're like really I would it would not shock me if any of the receivers that we signed last year come in and are and are immediate contributors. I'm not saying all of them will be, but it, I would not be surprised if any one of them stepped up and was like, you know what, I'm gonna be a, a day one type guy, kind of like George Pickens was. I'm not I wouldn't be surprised by any of them doing that. So I think we have some help on the way. I also think you mentioned we have some guys on the roster right now, receiver, who are good players who have things they can do for us, but they just were not put in the position to be successful and to maximize their skills. That's, as I've said so many times over the past year, and to me, that's, that's part of the structural issues that we had. Like we had some talented players that received. I think, I think Kiaris Jackson's a talented player. I think Demetrius Robertson is a talented player, but we just were asked them to do things within the structure of our offense that did not fit their skill sets. And we were not maximizing what they did bring to the table. And I think we're going to fix, we're going to clean up some of, a lot of those things structurally this year with Todd Mungin. So I think there's gonna be a significant impact uh, on our offense in a positive direction. I mean, and, and also to factor this in, like, look, James Coley got that job as offense coordinator based on um, cohesion. Like Kirby wanted to keep things together, the, the cohesion there with Jake Fromm as you know, he was his quarterback coach, co-offense coordinator, all that, a whole nine yards. He, and we were kind of all in last year and what could have been Jake Fromm's last year and what ultimately ended up being Jake Fromm's last year. We were trying to capitalize on that. I get that to a degree, but you also look back and we know this, James Coley had basically no track record as an offense coordinator. He was offense coordinator calling plays at Miami with moderate success at best. That whole staff got fired. So he really had no good track record whatsoever to speak of. That's certainly not the case with Todd Munkin. Todd Munkin has built and run his own offenses at multiple different stops and has had a great deal of success doing so to the point that he has such great success at, at uh, Oklahoma State building and coaching an offense and calling plays that he parlayed that into a head coaching job at Southern Miss, which and he had success there, which he parlayed into an NFL coaching job. So this guy has much more of a track record than James Coley ever had. He's going to be more on the cutting edge of offensive theory than we were ever were under James Coley or, and really even Jim Chaney uh, as well. So I, I think there's going to be a significant upgrade. I think there's gonna be, certainly going to be some growing pains, especially not having spring practice. That certainly concerns me. That hurts. But from a structural standpoint, the things we're going to try to do to maximize the, the skills that our players do have, I think you're going to see a significant improvement under Todd Monk. I, I fully expect that. But all right, guys, that does it for us here today on the Glory UGA podcast. We still have a number of questions to get to. But as we said at the beginning of the show, we only have a short window of time to get this in today. And we want to make sure that we give all the questions the time that they deserve. So we will be back early next week with part two of the April mailbag. I guess it'll actually technically be posted in May, but we'll still call it the April mailbag. We'll go with that. And uh, so that means if you are listening to the show and you have some questions, some thoughts that you have not sent in yet, you can still send those in and we will include those on part two of the mailbag. You can find us on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. Or you can also email those to us at glory UGA podcast at gmail.com. Whatever works best for you guys and any questions we get, we will make sure to include those on part two. And again, uh, if you have asked some questions, already sent those in and we didn't get to them today, I promise you, we will get to them next week. We're answering every question that is sent in. So thanks for listening, guys. We always appreciate the support. We really hope everyone out there is still staying safe and sane as we continue on through this crazy process. But we will have you guys covered next week and who knows there might be a friendly familiar voice back on the show after almost two months of quarantine the uh, stay-at-home orders here in the state of georgia are set to be lifted i think they expire actually today so 
we might have that familiar voice on next week once things get opened up a little bit more here in the state. So look forward to that as well. But for Curtis, I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.